Friends, I want you to know that I don't only cite science fiction movies or Lord of the Rings, um, that I have other interests outside of those fields. I also um, will read mystery books and watch those movies. And so this morning I got thinking about um, the Agatha Christie type, type mysteries. Did anyone else see the, the Death on an Isle? Okay, wow, even fewer than normal. I'm really out on a ledge. But I bet you know the type, right? So if you've read any of her books or most mysteries, they always have that point in, in the, the book or the movie where the, the detective gathers everyone and, and he does the big reveal, right? He, he lines out all the different clues that point to who is the murderer, who, who, who done it. And I love that point because usually I, I, I am not observant. I miss, miss it all. Like if I ever try to guess who actually did it, I don't know if I'm ever right. My wife sometimes gets it, but um, usually for me, uh, no way. So I love that point when they finally get to see, oh, those are all the things I missed. And so that's, of course, the best part of the movie is the point where the detective shows you all the clues and what they mean. Our passage today from this, this strange event on the road to Emmaus, I want us to think about what is going on. And what I'm going to suggest is that it's very much like those, that big reveal in a mystery, that Jesus himself is laying out the clues for what has happened so that his disciples can see and understand. Because you see, what, what Jesus had to do is he had to try to somehow explain to his followers the mystery of God's salvation plan and why God would bring salvation the way he did. Romans 16 actually uses the words mystery. It's talking about the preaching of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And it says, he says the gospel of Jesus Christ is the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So the gospel is the good news about Jesus, what he did, his death, and even more, his resurrection. That, that's the gospel story. And it, the, that happening, that Jesus giving his life on the cross was the key event for God bringing salvation to people. The, the Old Testament had told about a savior to come who would set things right in the world, but it was a bit of a mystery of how that would, how that would happen. How God would fix all the evil and injustice. How God would make things right in the world for his people. And so they told of a savior, but, but it would only be after the death and then the resurrection of Jesus that we could possibly understand it. Have you ever had someone do that? Where like, you had something coming up and someone tried to describe for you what it would be like to go through that thing. And I, I'm just guessing, um, you know, maybe, maybe for, for a woman to be like giving birth to a child, right? Your first child. Like someone tried to describe for you like what that would be like. But until you went through it, you had no clue of what it would actually be like. I think this is sort of like that. That until the resurrection happened, 
we just couldn't understand what God was up to. And, and so the Lord had a problem. He wanted his followers to understand this plan for salvation, this plan to bring eternal life. He wanted to, to, them to understand how, yes, he was the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for, but that he would be rejected, he would suffer and be put to death. And that was how he could bring salvation. So what happened when Jesus tried to tell his followers that this would happen? You know, when he talked about um, being rejected and, and going to the cross. You know, the, the, when the disciples finally figured out Jesus was the Messiah, Peter says, you are, you are the Messiah. You're the, you're the son of the living God. And what did Jesus, Jesus immediately began to say, okay, you're right. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to, the, the chief priests, they're going to reject me. They're going to, um, the people will reject me and I will end up being killed. And what did the disciples do when he did that? They argued with him. No, we, we won't let that happen, Jesus. Like they must've thought like he was just discouraged you know, and says, no, we, we're going to stand with you, Jesus. You know, we're not going to scatter. We're going to fight for you. We won't let that happen. They kept arguing with them. They could not understand how Jesus going to the cross could ever be victory. It made no sense to them. And so they kept reassuring Jesus, no, we're not going to let that happen. So then why, why couldn't Jesus then explain the meaning of the resurrection after it happened? Well, when you read the gospel accounts, you, you sort of see, like, whenever they were in the presence of the risen Jesus, they were just kind of dumbfounded. They were overcome, like, by his presence, by his, his power. So the risen Jesus, it, it was not going to be a setting where Jesus could sit down, now let me explain why this all happened. Because they just couldn't take it in. They were so in awe of his presence. So that was the problem Jesus had. He couldn't explain how he would bring salvation beforehand because they, they would argue with him. And afterwards, they'd be too overcome. And so how would he help them see that his death really was the victory that, the, that, would, that God was engineering? How would he explain the mystery of God's salvation to his disciples? And I'm going to suggest he, he had three tactics for actually explaining that. And so, and I'm, I'm fulfilling pastor law. They'll all, all be starting with P, all right? So first was parables. Jesus would tell stories that even if they didn't understand, they would remember. And so he told different parables that, that talked about the whole plan of salvation, like the parable of the tenants, where the, the master sends his son and the tenants don't want to, to do what he says, so they kill the son and kick him out of the vineyard, right? Jesus was, was pointing ahead to what would happen to him. Now, the disciples didn't understand that, but they would remember it. And so later, it would start to help them make sense. The other parable he talked about was the, the parable of the seed. And he talked a lot about scattering seeds, the scattering of the message, and in one verse it says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Right? So he gave them these parables or images. 
so that after the fact, they could start to put it together. The second way Jesus tried to explain this, this mystery of salvation was, well, it was the Lord. It was Paul. God picked one guy, a zealous teacher of the law, an expert in the Old Testament who had studied under the top rabbi of his day, right, who knew, who knew the Old Testament inside and out, and who was so intent that at first he actually persecuted the Christians because he thought they were leading them the wrong direction. But then Jesus appeared to him on the road, alive. So when the risen Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul, be, Paul was able to, to see it all. He was able to pick out God's plan. He was kind of the master detective. And so in his letters, Paul wrote about more than anyone else the gospel. If you look at the New Testament, many of the letters were written by the Apostle Paul. And he's the one that, that maps out what the gospel is, what it means. And so that was actually a key mechanism for God to explain the mystery of the gospel. But the problem is, is Paul would come later. He would, he would not meet the Lord until a few years after the resurrection. So he needed one more way. And this is where we get the stranger along the road who explains the meaning of all the prophecies. That's the third P, prophecies. But it's the stranger. See, Jesus comes to his disciples incognito, right? Unrecognized so that he can actually talk to them, and he could outline what's going on. On Easter Sunday, the followers of Jesus were confused. They were dispirited. Um, they, they, even after the women came back, and they reported the tomb is empty, and there's angels telling us that he's alive, they still couldn't get it. They couldn't believe it. Why? Because they couldn't understand why it would happen in the first place. So Mary Magdalene had her personal encounter with Jesus, and she told John, but, and John and Peter, they, they went and checked out the empty tomb, but they still couldn't see it and understand it. And so that's where we're at when our passage begins. And what do we see in our passage? Two of the disciples are walking away. It says that very day, two of them, this is right after they had met, discovered the empty tomb, we're going to a village named Emmaus, Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. The key is they're, they're, they're going another way. Are they giving up on Jesus? You know, well, I guess he's just another failed Messiah. There's no way someone who was crucified could be victorious. But as they're walking away, they're still talking about it. They can't help but talk about it, right? And they, they can't believe all the events that have taken place and and as they talk about it, a stranger comes alongside and is listening to their conversation. And the stranger asks, well, what are you guys talking about? What happened? And they're like, are you serious? Do you not know what's happened? Doesn't everyone know what's happened? And they go on about, you know, Jesus and, and how he had on this. And so, so they begin to say, and on this, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, in mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, but how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So they just begin telling the stranger all the events that happened. And the stranger just listens. 
Oh, okay, tell me more. I wonder if Jesus is doing a little counseling at this point. Just letting them talk. They're still, they're still hurting over all this. And, and so they just sort of tell out the details. And, and verse 21 kind of shows their heart. Verse 21 says, But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Past tense. Their hope is now gone. Redeem Israel. They knew they needed a Savior who would, who would redeem his people. They'd, they'd built their lives. They built their hopes and were beginning to build their lives on this, this teacher, this prophet, this preacher, this guy who could heal the blind people and heal the lame people. Like he was doing amazing things. Maybe he could do what no one else could do. But we had hoped he was the one. And then in verse 22 says, moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier morning and they didn't find his body and now they come back and saying he's alive again and, and we checked out the tomb and found it, but, but we didn't see him. And see, this is key to my point, right? So now they've heard the message that Jesus is alive. The women could testify to what the angels have said, but they can't believe it because they can't understand why. Because they can't make sense of it. And they can't see how it fits within God's plan. There's all kinds of news and information we take in in our life. But to, to, to really get it, we have to be able to put it in some kind of framework. We have to make it, make sense of it by some mechanism. And at this point, the empty tomb makes no sense to them. They can't understand it. And so they can't believe it. They cannot yet believe he's, the, he's resurrected from the dead. We had hoped. And this is where the stranger steps up and takes charge. He takes over the conversation. Because in, in the story, there, it's no mystery who the stranger is. I mean, we, we were told a few verses earlier, it's Jesus. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus is doing that on purpose so that he can have a conversation with them and that he could reveal what needs to be revealed with them being able to hear it and not overwhelm them by his, his appearance. But in the story, uh, we're told that the one disciple's name is Cleopas and his friend, it, he, it's still a random stranger just passing by. And, and so this is what then the stranger says. He says, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. <laughs> and Jesus is maybe expressing a little frustration here. I, he he kind of would do that from time to time when he was alive in his ministry. Like, oh, don't you guys get this yet? Do I need to explain this again? When they, when they misunderstand them, he, he even called them, you little faiths. Like, can't you see? Can't you believe? And it's like, it's still the same thing. Um, but he was patient, you know, but he was expressing that. And then here's the key line. Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these, th suffer these things and enter his glory. Don't you see? This been the plan all along. Was it not necessary from what we know that it had to happen this way? And then verse 20 says, and beginning with Moses, which means the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament, 
he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They had seven miles of, of road to walk. And this would probably take all seven miles as he, he went through the different events and the different prophecies in, in the Old Testament scriptures and showed them how when you understand what this was saying, this was pointing ahead to God's great salvation plan. I imagine he talked about Passover, which was happening right around, which is, you know, the same weekend as Easter. We build Easter around when Passover is and how they would um, kill a lamb and use the blood and they'd post the blood around the, the, the doors of their, their, the frame of their doors, which is what God had told them to do. And the blood would protect them when, when they had left Egypt and God was killing all the firstborn sons, the blood would protect them from the angel of death. See, now another lamb has come and his death, his blood would protect us from death and lead us to life everlasting. I'm certain he, he talked about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This is one of the, the greatest of the, the prophecies of the Messiah. Let me read the few verses. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And, he is lo and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so he would have went through those scriptures and more as he, he put it all. He was like uh, the, the Hercule Perot, the, the great detective pointing out all the clues in their sight so they could start to see it, start to see how it all fit together. I remember when I was a teenager, at the point when I, I was still skeptical about Christianity and I was at a camp, Young Life camp, where I was hearing the gospel. And I remember one night, they, they talked about the crucifixion. And talked about all the events that took place on that. And then at night, we talk about it in our cabins. Like, talk more about the message and what it means. And, and I remember thinking, why should I care if Jesus died 2,000 years ago? Why should that matter? And they talked about sin and forgiveness. I'm like, well... I don't, I don't get it. Um, and then after our conversation as a little cabin, I remember very specifically my leader came out, took me out, and we, we sat on the porch, and we talked a little further. And he pointed me to this very same passage in Isaiah 53. And he says, read this. And I was like, okay. Well, this is just describing what the same thing you guys talked about, the death of Jesus. And then he said, yeah, but this was written 600 years before Jesus came. Like, really? And then it started to click with me how maybe this was part of some plan. That God had, had done this. That the death of Christ had a purpose. That is what the stranger, what Jesus was getting across to his disciples. He was helping them to, to see all the clues and, and only then, I believe, could they understand and believe he really was the risen Christ. And these, these few along the road to Emmaus, what happened at the, at the end, it says they get to the, we didn't, 
we didn't read the rest of this part, but they, they get to Emmaus. They, they sit down to, with Jesus, and it says, when Jesus broke bread, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Well, the breaking of the bread symbolizes, it's what Jesus did. It symbolized his own death. My, 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 this bread is my body broken for you. And in that moment, it clicked, and God opened their eyes, and instead of staying in Emmaus, they ran all the way back. They rejoined the rest of the disciples, and so they brought into the church all of the info, all the clues that Jesus himself had laid out. In this way, the mystery of God's salvation plan was revealed to the church. And then they discovered Jesus had been appearing to others as well. And now, now the more and more the disciples had seen the risen Jesus, now it all started to make sense. In Romans 16, going back to that verse I started with, um, it says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. The long ages of the Old Testament, it was kept secret. But now it had been revealed to God's people, to the church, to the new group of disciples. And then verse 26 says, And has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. God's command is that this, this mystery that has been revealed to the church would now be made known to all nations, all peoples, all tribes and languages, right? Why go to the Czech Republic? Why send people to Hungary? Why send people around the world? Because God has commanded that all nations would have a chance to hear the, the mystery revealed, the secret opened up, that it should be a secret from no one, that all would have the chance to hear. Why why do we seek opportunities to share this message within our community? Because we believe everyone deserves the right to hear about Jesus Christ. And we're committed to making that happen. And as, as God leads us, as God enables us. And, and it says, what's the goal? The goal is to bring about the obedience of faith. Now let's think about that phrase. The obedience of faith. In other words, God doesn't just want us to obey and, and follow these rules out of fear or, or something. He wants us to trust him. That's what faith means. He wants us to learn to trust our lives. And so we, we follow him, we live for him, we, we do the things he wants us to do because we've, we've learned to trust him with our lives. That's what that phrase is talking about. Um. We don't just do it because we don't want to go to the bad place. Instead, we become convinced that God's intentions for us are good. And so we're willing to trust our lives, trust what little we know of our lives to what we know of God our Father. And, and when we do that, when we see how it all fits together, then I think that the, the resurrection plan makes complete sense. I was reading even today from... An old book, I've mentioned it a few weeks back, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And he was talking about how the resurrection isn't um, 
actually that hard to believe if you already believe that Jesus was the Son of God come to earth. And, and he's talking about once you already understand that, that the big miracle was Jesus coming to earth, it doesn't, it's, it's not surprised. So it says it is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. If he truly was God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die than he should rise again. You know, the resurrection just makes sense from what, it's part of what God was doing. And if the immortal Son of God really did submit to taste death, it is not strange that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. The resurrection changes everything for people, for us. We were made to know and be known by God. It's our own sinful hearts that have gotten in a way. In John 20, it says, John says, these, these things are written. The, you know, the message about Jesus is written down so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why, why did he write down the gospel? So that we could come to know the living God and have life. Um, and earlier in John, it says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is sent not to condemn but to bring us to eternal life. God does not come to take away our life, but to lead us to life. I want to illustrate that um, in a way, in some ways it's a very simple way. And so I'm going to ask my, my helper to bring up a few, few chairs that I'm going to use. And um, it's a complicated part, but I want to try to give, an, give you a picture of how does God's salvation plan work in our lives. How, how is it meant to be? And so I'm going to do it using chairs. I could bring, I thought about bringing up people, but that would get hard to do. So I'm just going to use chairs because I can move them as I want. And so, um, and she put them like this. That's wrong. We're going to go like this. <laughs> but the big brown chair, this is God. Okay? So picture this is God. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination quite a bit. I'm making this really simple. And so these chairs represent us, people. Notice they're all different colors. So, um, but they're face-to-face, -face, right? We were made to know and be known by God. God did not create us as some disinterested science experiment. He created us in his own image that we could relate with him and relate to him. And life is found in this relationship. We don't have life on our own. We have life because we have it through God. So that's part one of phase one. There's eight, eight different steps to this. The problem is we all, in one way or another, have turned our chair away from God. We've decided that we know better how to live our life than God does. Now, you could look back to Adam and Eve in the garden where they disobeyed the one command God gave them to do, and that was to not eat from the, the one forbidden tree. But truth be told, we know it in our lives. We've decided in our hearts, you know, I can live life on my own. I can, I can find life better. I can decide for myself what is good and what is evil. Even 
you know, we can agree to maybe do some religious things, like we come to church, we give offerings, right? We, we try to be close to God, but we still keep the chair going in the direction we want to go. Other people may say, well, you know what? I, I don't need any of this God stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go live wild. And others just wander astray. So we have all turned our chair away from God in some way. And what that has done in something that we can't see, but I bet we can feel, is it has created a barrier between us and God. And again, if I had people up here, I'd have them holding this. But I want you to imagine two people still holding this. You see, God is holy and utterly perfect. He is unstained by any, any sin and wrongness. And so now that we have sin upon us, we have guilt, we can't just come back into God's presence. This, our sinfulness has created a barrier between us and God. You, you'll read, if you read the Old Testament, you sort of see signs of this. That, that someone says, oh, I wanted to see you, God, but God says, you can't see me. It would destroy you. One, one person is taken up into heaven and he does see God, but it, it says, whoa, it's me. He can't handle it. Why? Because he's, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, his sin, is he can't be in God's presence. And God gives him a special way to stay in heaven, to have this vision. But that's what the barrier of sin does in, in us and to us. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. We, we cannot, there's no offering we can give. There, there's no straightening up our life won't help us undo that. We are unable to save ourselves. Most religions are about how do we save ourselves? How do we somehow get things right with God by what we do? But what the Bible says is you can never do enough to fix this situation. None of us can. Instead, we need something that someone else would do for us. We need a savior. There's a brokenness inside of us. That sin, it's not just that it's created guilt between us and God. It is it broken, broke the image within. And it's wound itself into our heart. I sometimes think of it as like weeds that have grown tendrils into our heart. And, and we're not able to, to pull all those weeds, no matter how hard we try. We needed one who would come and do for us what we couldn't do. And the heartbreak is, is to us, it feels like God is angry at us, right? It, to us, it feels like God is distant and far away. But on this side, God is a father whose heart is broken after the people who've walked away from him. A father who's been trying to find a way to bring his people back to him for century after century. That is the story that's taking place in the Bible as you read it. But to fix the situation, God had to do more than send prophets and messengers. So, God sent his one and only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to set us free from the sin that entangles us. But what did Jesus have to do? He had to take this barrier, this, this thing, 
upon himself. And he took it to the cross. And on the cross, he bore the sins of the world. And on the cross, it was dealt with. At the end, before he died, Jesus cried, It is finished. Because he had taken this upon himself and then destroyed it. One time I, I did this with the thing, and I actually, I had it, and I ripped the whole sheet, you know, and I, I had pre-cut it, right? So I wasn't going to go through all that work this time, because I like this, I like this tablecloth. Um, in 1 John 2, 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, Right? Sin and guilt no longer blocks the way between us and God. It, 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 the, the way is back, right? There's, there's no barrier from God's side for us entering into eternal life. But that doesn't mean the problem is completely dealt with, right? What's still the problem? The chairs are still going in the wrong direction. And going along with that problem is that the sin has this power over us that we, we have trouble. Some think, oh, it's just easy to just turn your chair around, but there's something in us that keeps choosing the opposite direction. We needed help, not just with dealing with the sin barrier. We need help making that heart change. So here's the next part of the good news. He came and preached peace to us. See, Jesus not only died for our sin, he is now alive, seated at the right hand of God, and he has sent his spirit to eat to people. And it says, Jesus says, once I've been lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Right? He is at work, and he can engage people. He can engage us, one, through his word, through the Bible, the, the message. He can engage us also through, through his people, us, disciples, as we talk to people. But he could also even do it directly by his spirit. And he could speak to the hearts and, and, and draw people to the stage where they are ready to turn their life to the Father. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. To those far away who've, who've maybe been, gave no thought to God in their life but when they've heard the message and find out God really does care about them and see the need that they have, they're more ready than anyone else to make that turn. To turn and come back to the Father. Sometimes, people who've been you know, the most religious think, I don't really need that. I'm fine. I'll put in my religious time, but I'm still going to be in control of my life. You see, that's where it's left us, right? We have to make this change of direction. We have to trust him enough to, to turn back to him. And even afterwards, we will still fall short, um, but it's that heart change when he comes into our life and he begins to remake our heart so that we can live with God forever. And so the last step in this illustration is simply, which way are you facing? 
have you heard that still small voice and said, yes, I know I can't get my life together, but Lord, I'm ready to trust you. I want what you have. And I may not get it right all the time, but I'm going to trust my life into your hands. I want to come back to the Father. That's, that's the point at which we're all at. All human beings have to be. And it says, there's a verse in Hebrews that says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is the plan. This is the offer. It's not like there's all these many ways to get back to God. It's that through the Son, God did this. That's the significance of the resurrection. But it puts the, the challenge on each of us. Will we take that step? Or will we choose to live life apart from God? How will it be if we neglect such a great salvation? What would it mean to live life apart from God for eternity? Separated from everything that is good and love and joy, and peace, and patience. I think we would call that hell. Know this, the Father does not want that for any person. And so he is at work to make known the good news that more and more people would say, I do need you. I am ready to make that decision to trust you. The mystery that has been kept secret for long ages has been revealed. Friends, I just want to end with this simply. If you put yourself into the Emmaus Road story, where would you be? Would you still be walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from the Lord and his people? Would you be confused and still trying to make sense of it. I, I, don't know, I don't get, how does this all work? Would you be like them, it says, where they started to feel something in their heart, something stir in their heart as the stranger spoke, as Jesus spoke to them. They could tell something was going on even if they hadn't quite got a hold of it. Or would you be like them when they realized it was true and they were running back to the other disciples to share the good news? Where would you put yourself in the story. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is raised and we know that because he is raised from death, so will all who belong to him. We thank you that we can belong to you, to know you, to love you. And so right now, Lord, if anyone's still thinking about how this makes sense, Lord, may you give them divine insight and wisdom so that they can make that, that step for themselves. Lord, we trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.